You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Mohamed Mahir abdul who is a hematologist and bone marrow transplant physician in New York, New York, and is affiliated with multiple hospitals, including NYC Health and Hospitals Bellevue and NYU Langone Hospitals. We encourage you to listen to our other episode with Dr. Abdulhay, where we spoke about symptoms, risk factors, and diagnosis of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, known as ALL. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Abdulhay. Thank you very much for having me. On this episode, we're going to chat about the treatment of ALL and current and emerging therapies. But before we jump into that, what is ALL? So ALL is acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's a malignant transformation and proliferation of um, lymphoid progenitor cells in the bone marrow and the blood and sometimes it has extramedullary uh, presentation like it can go to the uh, CNS. So lymphoid progenitor cells are a type of white blood cells. They misbehave, they start to increase production and they take over the rest of the white blood cell. It's usually a disease of the young. Actually 80% of ALL is in children. Unfortunately when it presents in elderly or older people than children, it can become a devastating disease because the treatment becomes more challenging and at times less effective. In the USA, there's about 6,500 cases a year of ALL diagnosed, 80% in children, but there's also another peak around the age of 50. What are some pre-treatment considerations? All these chemotherapy most of the time lead for infertility. So what happens is um, early on, if someone is uh, in a childbearing age, we need to have a discussion, either for sperm donation or even for egg preservation, if we do have the time to do that. Unfortunately, a lot of times they present, they are in a very aggressive form, we do not have the luxury to wait, but if we do, yes, and that's actually the first discussion we have with patients before we start treatment. That's so great to hear because, you know, last week, Lizette and I, we were actually filming a young adult video, and the young adults, they were diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And we were talking to them, and many of them said that, you know, when they started treatment, either the issue of fertility never came up with the doctor, or the doctor just said, you know, from the beginning, you will never be able to have children. And thank God that ended up not being the case, but how important is it for the patient to ask these questions? It is very important. They should do that in any type of cancer when they're getting chemotherapy. They should ask about that. We have here, we bring it up the first visit, actually the first time we diagnose them. And we have ways, as I said, in May it's easier because sperm donation, we can do that in the hospital. We can actually arrange for them in clinic, all of that. But when it becomes to, to, for female, they become harder because then egg preservation, all of that. But however, there's a lot of time we try to not doing like egg preservation, like doing some treatment to try to decrease the toxicity on the ovaries. 
like giving them some uh, growth factor inhibitors, uh, trying to shut down their uh, period, their cycles, all of this. And we do that routinely. So on the moment of their diagnosis, this is a discussion we have with them. And we do tell them that even with all these w modalities that we're going to do, there's still a chance, unfortunately, of them being infertile. I'm glad that you bring it up, though, because a lot of times you don't know what to ask. You don't know to ask about fertility. You can't ask what you don't know. So it's very important what you're doing, which is bringing it up. A cancer patient should understand that life doesn't stop there. They should continue their life as they have planned to. And they should bring up the things they have in mind, their plans, their future, all of this. So they should not just life stop there and just start to get over the disease. They should plan ahead. And I think when they do plan ahead, it gives them a peace of mind as well. Sure, it gives you, you know, some of that control that you lose when you hear that you have a cancer diagnosis. Like you said, you feel like, you know, there is no more. And it's so refreshing for you to tell everyone as a specialist that there is life after diagnosis. That's very important. That's true. When we do get a consent for them to get chemotherapy, in the consent of the chemotherapy, we do actually mention every side effect, including infertility. So we, they are notified from the beginning, and it's very important they know what to expect from side effects, not just for their own health benefit, but also to plan the next step in their life, and also because there's a trust. If I tell a patient, oh, you're going to get chemo, nothing going to happen for you, and then something happened, and this trust is gone, and once the trust is gone, it's never restored. That's so true. You mentioned chemotherapy, of course, is treatment. What are other treatments for ALL? So the key is really the age. So if someone is young, meaning they are like, say, adult young adolescents up to the age of 39, they're going to get a pediatric-inspired regimen. And usually this pediatric-inspired regimen is consists of induction followed by consolidation, intensification, maintenance, and then if they need to go for transplant. That induction usually and consolidation involve a drug called pegasporginase. That drug, the elderly cannot tolerate. So if someone above the age of 60, I never really use it. So then another combination comes in if someone above the age of 40 and not in great shape or above the age of 60, then they get another induction regimens. Uh, however, in this era, we have more what we call targeted therapy. So two of the targeted therapies that have been uh, approved for ALL, they are not approved really for first line, they are for more for refractory relapse or second line, or if people have what we call minimal residual disease. So the most important aspect in treating ALL is to make sure they do not have minimal residual disease. What minimal residual disease mean? It's that when they have induction, after induction, they get a bomar aspirate. If they have down 10 to the power minus 4 left over, this means that they have minimal residual disease. If this minimal residual disease is left on, it's going to come back because this is what resistance for your treatment. So, you know, you left like some troops, they're going to gather themselves and they're going to grow and grow and grow. And then they're going to come back and they usually come back with vengeance because this is the resistance for chemotherapy. So if someone have a minimal residual disease or they have still disease after chemotherapy because the first line of treatment in most cases is chemotherapy, um, then they got targeted therapy. And targeted therapy that I have been approved for uh, ALL, uh, there are two, and they are actually very cool. The way they work is this. One of them is called blinutumumab. It actually gathered your own immunity to go and fight the leukemic cells. So what it does, it's a, it's a bispecific um, molecule. It takes your T cells, which is CD3 positive, and attach them to B cells, which are CD19 positive. And basically your own T cells go after your B cells and destroy them. 
So this is a very cool way to destroy your own leukemia because think about it, your immunity system should have seen that these cells are not normal and they should have gone after them to destroy them. But somehow these cancer cells are clever. They found a way to protect themselves so the immunity system cannot see them. So when you introduce bite by specific therapy, CD3 attached to CD19, they go and your T cells destroy your B cells. This is used as a second line or refractory labs or, or people that haven't gone into remission after chemotherapy and still have some minimal residual disease. And it's very effective. It's even superior to second line chemotherapy. And then another drug is called inutizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that targets CD22. So because these B cells in ALL, they express CD22. So you can, there's a monoclonal antibody now that goes after it and destroys it. And the toxicity is limited. Um, because, you know, it's an antibody. It's not like a chemotherapy that destroys everything, including good and bad cells. This is a targeted therapy. They have a downside, each one of them. They have some other complications in chemotherapy or side effects, but they are sounding as a future. Being a targeted therapy, would it have less side effects than a chemotherapy regimen? Definitely. However, because, you know, when you boost the immunity, the immunity can get hyper. And what happened with um, the blinutumumab, the one that takes the CD3 to fight the CD19, you can end up having what we call cytokine release syndrome, meaning there's uh, so much hyperimmunity, you can get fevers with it, you can get low blood pressure, all of this. It's fixable with steroids. And it doesn't happen always. The other medication, the targeted therapy, the inotizumab, it has one side effect on long term, on uh, initially. So if people get inotizumab and then they, get, they end up going for transplant, they have about 11% chance of developing a disease called venoclusis disease, which is really a complication of post-transplant because they got this targeted therapy. And venoclusis disease can be uh, deadly. So unfortunately, they don't come without a price. The cytokine syndrome in one of them is usually very, very, very well managed. The venoclusive disease is 11% risk, but again, in some cases it is also manageable. So the toxicity profile is completely different than your nausea, vomiting, hair loss, decreased white blood cell count, neutropenia that you see with your chemotherapy. Some chemo can affect the heart. This is completely different. The toxicity, the side effects are completely different. They are usually well managed. Right. And you spoke of the cancer cells being clever. And it's interesting that you said that because I was talking to another doctor who compared, you know, finding out the right treatment to a Rubik's Cube. And he was saying, you know, all, the treatment is there and there's a lot of advancement, but these cancer cells are so clever. that It's gotten to the point where, where you know, patients are saying, you know, why, what, what is taking so long, basically? And why didn't you guys catch this earlier? And I have all these questions, but it's the understanding that these cancer cells are so clever and go under the radar. That's true. Because if you take a look at, say, uh, adult ALL, unfortunately, with chemotherapy, induction chemotherapy, um, you have a response rate sometimes around only 50%. So why the other 50% not responding? And this is because you are attacking these cancer cells and destroying them with chemotherapy. But there's some of them, they have found a mechanism, a way to make this treatment ineffective. So they are still there. They're not dying. And what happened is they start grouping themselves and they start growing and then they take over. And this is why multimodality treatment is sometimes the key. When you start adding, uh, mixing, uh, say, monoclonal antibody, targeted therapy, with chemotherapy, you're like attacking the disease from multiple aspects. And that's why you have a better success. So in this era, we are actually, there's a lot of clinical trials testing monoclonal antibodies, they're testing the bite as a first line, especially in elderly. 
as, as a combination between each other or uh, actually as a combination of chemotherapy. And the data we have so far and the results are actually very, very promising. It's even better what we have as of now just by chemotherapy. So you just need to attack from multiple places. Right. And I'm happy that you mentioned clinical trials because that's also something that LLS, you know, we strive to educate our patients and our caregivers on is that a lot of people hear that word and I think the ideology behind it may be shifting. I'm not sure entirely, but I know that when I first started here at LLS, there was always the conversation of patients hearing that word and thinking guinea pig or sugar pill and clinical trials, they advance science and they're what are able to present the next standard treatment because of those who participated in that. So for those listening, what's new in acute lymphoblastic leukemia research? So there's a lot actually going on in ALL. Unfortunately, most of what's going on in ALL is in BALL more than DLL. The majority of the ALL is BALL. So I mentioned in the first episode that there's what we call Philadelphia-like. And Philadelphia-like is completely different than Philadelphia chromosome positive patient with ALL. So in ALL patient, Philadelphia chromosome, they take uh, they get um, a second generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor like the satinib, and they have a very good outcome. So what are the Philadelphia-like? And this is what's going on in clinical trials, and we're seeing actually respond, but that's not the standard of care, but this is because people participate in clinical trial, and we found that people that have Philadelphia-like, the CRFL2, if you add a drug, which is actually up there um, uh, approved, which is a JAK inhibitor, cortexolotinib, if you add it, you, have, you can target that pathway that is a Philadelphia-like, and you have a better outcome. And then the other Philadelphia-like, which is a CDKN2A, and if you add the satinib, which is the TKI inhibitor we used in um, CML, another type of leukemia, chronic leukemia, you can actually attack it and you have a better outcome. So this is what's going on in clinical trial in Philadelphia-like. What's also going on is other drugs that have been approved for other types of uh, cancers, like bortezomib, which have been approved in multiple myeloma. It's being tested in ALL. And then there's another drug that we know actually has a lot of efficacy from before in TALL. It's called milarabine. It's a purine analog that we are noticing now. If you put it up front with chemotherapy, you can have a better outcome. But what's most exciting in ALL is CAR T-cell. And CAR it doesn't mean that the car you drive, it's actually different. It's a chimeric antigen receptor uh, T-cells. And these are genetically modified T-cells that we obtain from patients. So we obtain your own T-cells, which are your own immunity, and we modify them genetically in the lab. And then we give them back to the patient to expand in the patient, and they go after their leukemia and destroy it. So how we do that? So we collect the T-cells by a pharesis machine. They sit on a machine, they collect the T-cells, and then we take the T-cells for the lab. And what we do in the lab with a retrovirus, we infect these T-cells to express on their surface a modality that can identify leukemic cells and go after them and destroy them. In the case of ALL, they express uh, CD19 receptors. So now when we put back these T-cells in the human, in the patient with ALL, they're gonna go and see every cell that express CD19. They're gonna go after it and destroy it. And to make sure that only these T cells are present in the patient, we do what we call lymphodepletion before we do that. So what we do is we give them chemotherapy made of two drugs, fludarabine and cytoxin, that destroy all your T cells. So basically you have no more T cells. And then in the lab, we have generated these T cells from you that gonna go after your leukemia. And then we reintroduce them to the patient and now these T-cells expand and they take over and now all your T-cells are armed to go after CD19 to go after your leukemia. And what are some side effects of CAR T-cell therapy? 
So two things that we worry about in cortisol, cytokine release syndrome, which is much more real than the bite that I mentioned and much more higher grade. There's about five grades in uh, cytokine release syndrome, grade four, which is sometimes can go up to 20% of these cases. People can end up being on a respirator because the cytokine release syndrome is so severe and they can have hypotension, they can have continuous fevers. There's a medication that blocks the cytokine release syndrome. It's called tocilizumab. It's an interleukin-6 inhibitor that we try to give them to patients when they start having fevers and low blood pressure. And a lot of time we can also use steroids that can actually get rid of the cytokine release syndrome. So that's one of the aspects that we worry about in CAR T cells, the cytokine release syndrome. The other is CRAS, which is basically cytokine release encephalopathy. It can cause encephalopathy, it can cause neurotoxicity. Again, steroids usually is very effective in that aspect, but we need to monitor the patient. Actually, they get to be asked a set of questions called CAR talks. This is CAR talks sent, sent for CAR T cell toxicity. And that question is made of 10 points. Every day we ask them to see if they're having any toxicity. One of the questions actually would be to write a sentence for us. What's the date today? What's the name of the president? And a lot of times that question, when what's the name of the president? Some of the patients will not answer for us. <laughs> <laughs> they do this on purpose. And they start being worried if they are part of, they are in, uh, they are in toxicity or it is because some um, political statement they're trying to make it so actually i think we are going to change this question instead of what the name of the president maybe uh, what the name of something someone more fa someone famous other than the president so um, but but that's really so well, they get this is a sense of humor <laughs> yes, actually, I have a patient every day. He kept uh, not answering this question, and I was like, "Okay, I'm, I'm worried." And he he refused to uh, to, uh, to answer the question, so I changed it for him. I start asking him, "What's my name?" Instead, of, uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Something less controversial. <laughs> Correct. So these are the two main uh, things that we worry about: the, uh, the cytokine release syndrome and the encephalopathy, the neurotoxicity. And how easy is it, I guess, for an ALL patient to obtain CAR T-cell therapy? Do they have to be on a clinical trial to access it? So unfortunately, as of now, the CAR T-cell that is approved for ALL is limited to age of 25. So if you are above the age of 25, you cannot get the commercial CAR T-cell. So above the age of 25, they go on a clinical trial. Okay, that's good to know. Yes, it's very expensive, and so far the FDA haven't approved it till the age of 25. I have no doubt in my mind that it has a role in the future and it's going to be for people above the age of 25. Ah, you know, that, that was going to be my next question. I was going to say, where, where do you see CAR T-cell therapy going in the future? I think it's going to have a big role for patients in refractory lab settings. It could be a cure. And it, the problem with CAR T-cell, you can lose the construct. With time, you can get back your other T-cells, you know, the T-cells that you have that doesn't have the armor. And basically, the leukemia can come back. So in my mind, CAR T-cell have a very big role, and the big role it's going to be in the future, possibly, is that it's going to be used in the cases where you have refractory lapses, the chemotherapy is not going to work, you know, this, this, this monoclonal antibodies, this bite's not going to work. So this is where CAR T-cell is going to come in, going to put the patient into remission, to have a very high chance of putting them into remission, and then they can go for transplant to make sure that the disease stays there and doesn't, they don't relapse afterwards. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, If because you do have the expertise in transplant, because some people are looking to CAR-T for cure, and some people are really looking for CAR-T as a bridge to transplant. 
True. I still, at this moment, I still believe that it's going to be more of a bridge for transplant than uh, cure, unless we have a better construct. I mean, we are in the fourth generation of CAR T cells. We have, they have manipulated them. They have done even better constructs. As of now, I don't believe that it's going to be cured for most patients. It's going to be as a bridge for transplant. And the good part is that you can monitor it. So you know you can monitor the construct. So when you start losing the construct, that doesn't mean you are already relapsed. That means you're going to relapse. So this is a time, you know, you can get ready to go for a transplant. You're still in remission, but you just, you know, you're starting to lose a construct. You're starting to see some B cells that you should not. Then this is a time you start working on your transplant before you relapse. And we've mentioned cure. And I just want to be clear to our listeners that there are several types of leukemia and there's chronic types and there's acute types. And usually doctor for the acute types of leukemia isn't the goal cure, whereas the chronic types is more to manage the disease. Correct. So in, in acute, uh, is, is in acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoid uh, leukemia, uh, the ALL or AML, you are not going to accept anything less than a cure. There's no here uh, what we call um, partial response. So you are either going to aim for a cure or the patient, you know, the disease can um, take over. It's different than your chronic. And uh, when you're treating someone with ALL, you, you really uh, should tell the patient and the patient aware of this and the physician aware of this that we are not going to accept anything less than a cure because really if you have minimal residual disease, even 0.08%, this means that this 0.08% is going to come back. This is not cure. So, you know, you want cure. You want zero. You want a complete remission. You want to make sure that disease doesn't come back. Thank you for clarifying that. Sure. My pleasure. And you mentioned that for adults, it's a harder disease to treat, whereas we do know that for children with ALL, there is pretty good prognosis at this point. Why is that? That's true. And that's why I mentioned if we have someone what we call adult young adolescents up to the age of 39, we try to treat them with a pediatric-inspired regimen. The reason is that the pediatric-inspired regimen, really strong regimens, they have a drug called back aspirogenase, they have other drugs, they have even higher doses. And that's because pediatric patients can tolerate these with low toxicity. Unfortunately, when you become an adult, when you get these drugs and you can end up having a lot of toxicity. So a lot of these patients in adults cannot get the same treatment that they get in pediatric. They get a less, I don't want to say the word inferior, they get a lower intensity chemotherapy. And because of that reason, there's the outcome is worse. And the second reason why the outcome is worse is because pediatric ALL is associated less frequent with genetic abnormalities compared to the adult ALL. The adult ALL most of the time associated with genetic abnormalities and the poor one and the bad risk and the bad players like Philadelphia positive, Philadelphia-like, hypodiploidy, 11Q23 deletions, and some other translocations that are actually poor risk. And these, these genetic abnormalities and translocations make your leukemia more resistant for treatment and chemotherapy. So doctor, what are some long-term effects of treatment? So some long-term effects of treatment depends about age. So the younger you are, you have been exposed to chemotherapy. It can increase your risk in the long term to develop actually some changes in the marrow, which we call MDS, myelospastic syndrome. It can also lead for second malignancies, unfortunately, because, you know, you are going to live 40 years afterwards and you have already been attacked. Your cells have been attacked with some chemotherapy toxic, so it can increase the risk of secondary malignancies. 
Short term, uh, things that we worry about is infertility that is actually common with these toxic chemotherapy medications. And then s some long term effects. Uh, you know, if people get transplanted, we worry about the most thing that we worry about long term is graft versus host disease, which is chronic GVHD that actually can develop at any time post allergenic stem cell transplant. Usually, the chronic form present after 100 days and can sit there for years. It can be of a mild nature to severe nature, it can be just a skin rash or something more serious. So there's short term and there's long term. The short term is usually uh, toxicities are very well manageable and they don't leave any long term effect. The long terms are secondary malignancies, uh, other um, hematological malignancies, and if you get transplanted, GVHD. Doctor, here we usually encourage patients, if they can, to get a second opinion. How do you feel about second opinions? I always tell my patient, if you have any doubt or if you want a peace of mind and you feel better talking to someone else, you should go after it. I highly encourage them to do that. So ALL, the treatment, say if patient just getting chemotherapy, the maintenance phase is two and two and a half years. So you're gonna develop a treatment relationship with the patient for three years. So you want them to be really truly believe that this is a person they trust, this is the one person they want to be with, this is a treatment they're gonna commit themselves for three years. They're committing themselves for three years. So I do encourage them if they have like doubts or they are have concerns to go for a second opinion. I mean, this is a three year relationship on treatment, not to mention afterward for follow up. And if they go on for transplant, they're gonna see you very frequently post transplant and they're gonna even have a longer relationship with you. So this is a big commitment and they actually have to make that commitment from their part, not just from your part. So they have to be fully into their heart, their mind, everything to fully sink into that commitment. So I always encourage them, if they have any doubt, they should go for a second opinion. And a lot of the time, uh, what happens, they go for a second opinion, they hear the same thing, it gives them reassurances, and then they come back, they are feeling more reassured, and you, you basically the same treatment. Very rarely there's a miss. Uh, like um, they, you hear different opinion from one physician or another. Most of the time they are very consistent when they are seeing the same expert, leukemia expert, they are very consistent. And they're not hurting your feelings. Because a lot of patients that are more elderly seem to say that, you know, they don't want to get a second opinion because they don't want to hurt your feelings. So I had a patient actually, she wanted a second opinion and she went for a second opinion without telling me, which is completely fine with me. Uh, but uh, I think she felt guilty afterwards and so she wrote me a letter uh, saying that she, you know, she went for a second opinion and she put it in my desk in the office and that, that this is not because she did not trust me. She thought I was young and, and she wanted someone elderly just to be sure to take their, their opinion. I keep telling patients, you should go where you feel is right for you. This is a big decision. This is a big commitment. You should not really care about what I think or what I don't. You should, this is your life and you should make that decision in peace and you should be happy also making that decision. So you should not really feel, okay, uh, you're hurting my feeling or you're making me, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And I believe most of the physicians are and they understand that part. Be mindful, though, that after this episode, you may very well become a second opinion for my neighbor <laughs> listeners today. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, you mentioned that it's a pretty long trajectory for treatment, two, three years. Is it different for males and females how long the treatment lasts? 
No, it doesn't. It just differs if you are going for transplant or not. So if you're not going for transplant after the, all this induction, consultation, intensification, you're going to be on maintenance for... Most of the maintenance would be pills. One you take a day, one you take once a week, and then injections, uh, which is most of the time been Christian, you come every two to three months. But it doesn't differ between male and female. What differs is if you're going for transplant or not. Because if you do going for transplant, you know, there's no role for maintenance. Once you are into remission, after COVID, a few consultation and you have a donor, you proceed with a, with a transplant. Doctor, I know that you have an expertise in transplanting. What's the best type of transplant since there's different types of transplants for patients, especially if possibly they don't have a donor for an allogeneic transplant? So the only benefit in ALL is an allogeneic stem cell transplant. In this era, we very rarely not find a donor. So the best is to find a match-related donor, full match, like a sibling. That's really the best thing. The next best is find a match unrelated. And there's this NMDP, National Marrow Donor Program Registry. So a lot of time we do find a donor. But like I live in New York, and New York there's so many different ethnicities, so it's always a challenge, believe me, to find a donor. Uh, so then we go for what we call the haplo match, meaning half a match. So uh, from a sibling, the chance of you having, a, if one of your sibling is half a match, is 50%, full match 25%. So the more you have sibling, the more you have a chance of half a match. And for children, so uh, if people have children, then their children is going to be definitely 100% going to be haplo because they're going to inherit half of the uh, HLA type from their from their parents. So if you have children, there you go. You find a, you find a donor. So then that comes after the match unrelated, the haplo. And it's still a lot of people are single or they don't have children and you cannot find for them uh, sibling or match unrelated or haplo. And then we go for what we call the last resort, which is an umbilical cord. And most of the umbilical cord, you can end up finding someone. So it's very rarely a case that you cannot find a donor. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Dr. Abdul Hay, and for all that you do for your patients. This is clearly your passion, and it's great to speak with doctors like yourself. Thank you very much, Alicia and Lizette, for having me. I really enjoyed it, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.